Hello and welcome to another Professional Practice Podcast with me, Austin Williams, Senior Lecturer at Kingston School of Art in London. These podcasts are for students and practitioners alike to dip into a series of professional policy issues in order to develop a broader understanding of how architecture and the construction industry works or should work. So today we're zooming in to speak with Dill Sinclair, Director of Technical Practice at ACOM, one of the biggest infrastructure companies in the world. And he is, of course, the author with the RIBA Sustainable Futures Group of the RIBA Plan of Work 2020. He's also the RIBA's grandly titled Ambassador for Collaboration. And actually, we're going to be looking in this podcast at design collaboration and project coordination through the prism, in some respects, of the Plan of Work. So thank you very much indeed, Dale. Thanks for joining us. Just uh, as we always do with these podcasts, if we just have a little bit of a personal story to engage with you about where you studied, how you got into this game, how you got into architecture in the first place. Yeah, so I uh, studied at the Macintosh School in Glasgow. How I got into architecture, I suppose at school I was more, I was kind of more into maths and physics, but I did have a love of drawing and uh, not just sketching, but also technical drawings. So, uh, which was quite unusual to, you know, for, to, for people, I think, to have both of those kind of likes. And I was really unsure what to do before I went to university. And I was really lucky because I went to school in Edinburgh and the Edinburgh Architectural Association at the time had a scheme for people at school between fifth and sixth year to go into an office. So I, I was really uh, privileged to, to get to work in an architectural office between fifth and sixth year at school. And, and that really cemented that uh, I wanted to do architecture. It's funny, I was doing a lecture to a school recently talking about left brain, right brain. And you know, I, I think the Macintosh was a, a really good choice in the sense that it was trying to take my kind of more rigid mathematical brain and kind of make it into uh, you know something a bit more artistic. But I think that's a, that story is uh, a lecture in its own right, uh, Austin. So well, maybe for another time. Maybe for another time, yeah. exactly. But uh, but but you're a you're a great believer in what mixing maths and art, you know, like in the science and the art side of architecture. For me, uh, as we see more design automation, uh, I, I think it is becoming an essential for architects to to understand, you know, algorithms and uh, not that they're necessarily get, getting a good press right now. I think the, the the way that we use those for the future, and, and of course, many practices are using, using them just now for geometry, for like establishing uh, the geometry in many projects. But I think we'll see them for other purposes. Sure, sure, sure. Well, but since we started with a bit of background, let's just conclude that in terms of like your first job or how you got to where you are. Yeah, so my, my first job, which did actually last 17 years, uh, was with BDP. I decided to stay in, in Glasgow for a short period and it, it became a long period, mainly because I, I was lucky that after a year at being at BDP, a major project kind of started in Glasgow called the Broomelaw, and uh, it was a fairly major development, not not too dissimilar to, to Broadgate in London, and of course quite unique for Scotland, uh, and I managed to get a pivotal role in that, so uh, I was really lucky, and following that project, I went on to do Inland Revenue headquarters, uh, did shopping centres, I did Scottish Widows headquarters in Edinburgh, so uh, I was quite lucky to bounce from one major project to the next, so I very quickly gained uh, through really being site architect on a lot of these jobs a fantastic knowledge of how buildings get put together uh, and of course those were the early days of contractor design so we were working with some fantastic facade contractors doing some uh, brilliant things so yeah it was really exciting. So that's good old-fashioned hands-on architecture if you like I mean I'm just wondering then how you get into this digital world because yeah. you are the Construction Industry Council's BIM champion. How did you move into that? 
Well, I've, I've always been interested in that. So, for example, again, at BDP, uh, I was one of the early users of CAD in the office. And back in those days, BDP actually had their own CAD software. And then we moved from that on to more industry-specific software. So myself and the CAD manager at the time, uh, Don Kelman, we were, we were really kind of instrumental in trying to drive CAD into the office. So I've, I've, always, I've always been interested in that. My team right now, what we really focus on is delivering innovation into live projects. So it's not really for the faint-hearted because you really have to do business as usual, um, as well as, of course, trying to figure out how to use a whole ton of new technologies. But the other thing that we're also seeing is I think it's getting incredibly difficult just now to do the lead designer role because the number of topics that we're having to address from net zero, you know, there's social value, there's modern methods of construction. So there's a whole uh, plethora of new topics which we need. So I, I I suppose it's broadening the the knowledge that we need to have, but it also means that we need to have a much deeper knowledge for those topics as well. So I, I think that's one of the challenges for the profession. And, and one of the reasons that we need to look at design automation to help ease the pressure of all these new uh, subjects. Well, well automation and, and collaboration, as, as, as you Correct. mentioned in yeah. the Planet Works. So since we, since we um, brought that in, the Planet Works itself, before we go into some of the detail, do you have, uh, I've, I think I've asked you for a snappy couple of sentences, a paragraph to describe what yeah. it's for and, and why it's important. If you can imagine other countries, some countries don't have a plan of work. And because you might argue that if you've got uh, an understanding about when planning is required in the process and an understanding of uh, when, say, building regulations need to be applied, why do I need a plan of work? And of course, many countries still have a common form of procurement. The, the reason, though, is that the process is becoming more complicated. What many architects do get wrong is they, they think the plan of work is for architects. It's not. It's for the whole industry. It's it's for a, a client that's doing projects on a regular basis as much as it's for a client doing a one-off project. And it really is setting out what happens at each single stage. So I suppose it's really guidance, not just for design teams to build their own processes around and to bring clarity to what happens, but particularly for those doing it for the first time so they know what processes they might do and what they need to do at each stage. Okay, I mean, this interview is a bit of a scattergun, so apologies for skipping around a little bit, but can you explain what you've tried to do, uh, especially compared to the uh, 2013 document? What I would say is, obviously, the design stages are the crucial ones for you know, any, any architect in a design t- uh, stages two, three, and four. What we have tried to bring clarity on is that the the boundary between stage two and three is not necessarily a fixed boundary. It might vary between projects and a lot depends on what a client wants to sign off at stage two and you know and what engineering effort is needed to solidify the architectural concept. So so we've done some writing on that. But I think from a BIM point of view, a lot of people I think get BIM and design responsibility mixed up. So at stage four, we've been really particular in, in putting, amping up the whole notion about prescriptive design and descriptive design. Now, what I mean by that is where we as a design team take the design and it's used on site for construction. So for example, if there's a brickwork package, who is doing the drawings that will be used on site? Now, there's two ways we can do that. I can do the drawings and the bricklayer then has to work in accordance with those drawings. But another approach is I 
can do design intent and then the contractor gets to choose all the brick ties, the cavity trays and so on and so forth. And maybe I have to specify the specific brick because that's a planning uh, condition. So I, I think we're trying to bring more clarity to that could because people get design responsibility mixed up with procurement and they're completely two separate things. Because you have said that procurement is not necessarily, I mean, apart from fact, it's very complicated to put all the yeah. kinds of procurement yeah. routes into this document. You're kind of saying that procurement is a, of a lesser issue than maybe specification items in the, in the planning world. What we're saying is there, there are two separate issues. The, the whole point about procurement is, as, well, going back to what I've saying about other countries in their plan of work, because it's still a steady thing. In the UK, we've got management contracting, we've got tradi traditional procurement, we've got design and build as becoming the predominant form of procurement. And the way I tend to look on it is the plan of work is not a procurement process. It's a design process from which we pull out information that gets used for planning, gets used for procurement, and it gets used for, say, building regulation checks and so on. And I mean, I, I know there are others that disagree with that, but they see it as more a management process. But of course, the RIBA would never kind of agree that the plan of work was a, a management process. It's about designing a world-class building and producing great architecture. Very good. Well, we'll come on to that a little bit later. And since I've uh, thrown BIM into the mould, just very quickly, I just want your opinion on it, because the NBS survey, the latest one, I think 2020, say that the two things which are stopping BIM kind of taking a hold in some respects, which yeah. is that the lack of client demand is the biggest barrier, and then smaller practices don't see the relevance of it. And I just wondered yeah. what you thought about both those things. Is it relevant for small practices? And is this a cost, especially in today's climate, Again, going back many, many years, I think usually whether it's CAD or BIM, uh, I, I believe without a doubt, 100% that using these technologies is more efficient, using the BIM model to go straight into fabrication. There's a lot of small practices using VR as business as usual. Uh, we use VR for a lot of coordination ourselves. So, so we, we are seeing a lot of the innovation coming from small practices. And I think those at the cutting edge are, are definitely more efficient and producing you no know, real-time kind of renders from their from their models and, and really starting to push to what the future is. But sort of coming back to your point yeah, and, and tackling the BIM issue, for me, the big challenge just now is there's too much emphasis on 2D information. Th this really happened in CAD as well. So if I, if I was to go back to CAD and that uh, the, the transfer from the drawing board, what happened was a lot of people would really distort the CAD process and make it inefficient to make drawings from CAD look like drawings from the drawing board, you know, things like dimensioning and tags and so on. And, and that really made the process inefficient. Our QA processes didn't change, our drawing number numbering systems didn't change. So in many senses, CAD didn't really drive a huge amount of change. What we're seeing with BIM is the same thing. People trying to ask for 2D drawings as deliverable. Now, for me, there's a huge difference between a 2D view of a 3D model and, and a drawing. And I think for anyone listening on this, you, you, I would please appeal to you to try not to get into a world where you have to do drawings. You do not have to do drawings. Yes, some people do need them. And, and maybe in the next couple of years, the, the planners will start to accept models instead of drawings. But don't produce drawings for everyone when only a few actually need them. Look, the, the plan of work, Austin, is, it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't really matter if you, if you use a, a pen and pencil all the way through or or the best BIM model in the world. It's about producing, for me, the best information. The way I see it is that if you start off with a sketch on a piece of paper, the, the goal at the end of stage four is, is to have the best information ever in order to, for the, the contractor to make a building. Now, that might be a combination of manufacturing information. And one of the initiatives I'm currently working on is to, is to consider 
what does next generation deliverables look like at, at stage four? Because just now, like I say, there's too, still too much emphasis on one to hundred plans and one to five details, which to me is, is just running the analog process a bit too far into the BIM process. Okay, I'm, I'm feeling more like a dinosaur as this conversation goes <laughs> on. Uh, speaking of, um, of, of old days, when the first plan works came out, it took 50 years before it had its kind of major yeah. first iteration. And now it's been seven years. And it, I'm just wondering what you think about uh, the idea of kind of things bedding in because it's, yeah. it's you know in the in in our industry it's it's very difficult to have so too much change and too yeah. and, and continuity actually plays a, a beneficial role. So, what's yeah. the long, longevity of your new plan of works? Do you think? And what do you think about you know not bringing the next one in too too soon? Well, the first point, there were actually four or five changes between the first one and the version in 2013. So it wasn't always a kind of static document. But yes, you're right. 2013 was the first major iteration. The 2020 version isn't really fundamentally any different. It's just some real more behavioral things that we were trying to fix and people misinterpreting the plan of work. So we were trying to fix some of those cultural issues really with it. But yes, I mean, I, I do think about this all the time and certainly did when we were drafting the 2020 version about how robust the plan of work is. I think the plan of work is incredibly robust into the future. I think for me, we might see things like stage four, for example, being automated in the future but still doesn't um, you know, negate that, that you need a stage four and that you need to go through that progressive fixity of the plan of work. And if you analyze all the plans of work in the world again, which I think we put into the 2020 document, you'll see that there, there is only ever one construction stage, but some countries have two, like Spain has two design stages, Australia has the same as us, Russia's got three. So, so different countries have a different number of stages in order to get that progressive fixity of the concept through to the the construction information. So for me, with things like uh, DFMA, you know, design for manufacture and assembly, I've, I think there is an argument that bits of stage four uh, might get done at stage two because you need that level of detail to run through stage two. But I don't think it fundamentally changes the whole notion of the plan of work. And of course, stages zero and one and six and seven are, are crucial ones in acknowledging that the, the RIB is looking to get better outcomes from building. So I suppose one of the big shifts in 2013 was that we were looking to the notion that clients maintained and used their buildings. And I think that's one of the biggest changes culturally in, in the plan of work just now. There's a, there's a couple of issues and we can only go through a couple of issues we don't have yeah. uh, the time but it's advisable uh, um, for listeners to maybe play around with the plan online you know download the toolbox and, and what have you uh, from the RIB website and get a hang of it but as a starter a couple of core issues since we've mentioned um, stages the developed design stage three is now called spatial coordination now and it's, it's not just a name change there's, there's meaning behind it so what what is the reason for it? The main reason is if you speak to a, a lot of contractors and um, th this is a crucial thing for them because th they quite often come on board at stage two or three and then of course are asked to take responsibility for the scheme. It's something that's very to, uh, difficult to do. I mean, I've acted on both sides of the fence, so to speak. I've acted for uh, clients taking projects all the way through. I've acted for clients where we hand over to a contractor a separate team uh, somewhere between stage two, three and four. 
and I've acted, you know, for a contractor picking up from an, another design team. So that's, if you like, handover of the design baton is becoming more common than it used to be in the past. So let's say if I was taking a design all the way through. Now, if, if I didn't do the coronation properly at stage three, I would basically have to sort it out myself at stage four. I think it's really incumbent on those that are handing a design from, from themselves to another design team to explain the status of that design. But the messaging that we got from those on the other side of the fence, so to speak, there's a common frustration was that that schemes that they were getting at stage three were not didn't have risers in the right place, didn't have the right type of plant room. So what we're what we're really trying to say is a stage three design is not complete until in essence, the model in, in the old money, that would be the general arrangement drawings are kind of actually, let's say static, not necessarily 100% finished, but like fundamentally there. So all the risers are in the right place for MEP, all the plant rooms are the right size in the right place, have the right louvers. Uh, so that, that's really what's, that's what that spatial coordination is about. And it's, it's not saying, well, that's something that the contractor does. It's a fundamental part of stage three. And if stage three is done properly, then all these different uh, work streams and all the different building systems should be able to be developed independently at stage four without too much tweaking of that spatially coordinated design. Okay, well, stage four, I'm, I'm asking a question on behalf of old people. Um, I, a lot of students are going to be listening to this, but I, I think I should represent a, a later generation. In, in as much as uh, I remember the glory days when that distinction between stage C and D, as we used to call it, was a kind of a clear threshold for abortive work and once you stepped into stage D and started working on detailed design yeah. as we called it you could then charge if it was changed yeah. um, so even though it's probably within professional services contracts that you kind of deal the fine tuning of what you should do and what you what extra work you still could read in the, in the old days of planning works and actually find out when that line yeah. uh, was, was being reached so yeah. is that is that still the case in the planning works now do you think Absolutely. It's, it, I think at stage two, it says implement change control. So really, stage two is when we're saying any change, whether it's design development or the client making a change. I think it's just good practice to record those changes. Like I say, even if there's no construction cost implication or design cost implication, it's good to just get those signed off because stage two is a concept design. You know, It needs to be signed off by the client. If you don't get that signed off by your client, then you're not really performing your role properly. So what we're really saying is once you get that signed off, then yes, change control should kick in. Having said that, that what we do point out is if, for example, I was doing, a, let's say, a university and two weeks before the end of stage two, the client said, well, actually, you know what, Dale, uh, I'd like to get another half a dozen lecture theatres in here. That has changed. So that should still be instructed. I think we, we're, we're fairly light on that at stage two, recognising that there there is a piece of iteration between the brief and design. And of course, that's what sort of design is all about at stage two. It's not necessarily dogmatically working to the brief. There's exercising that fine line between pointing out to the client maybe a better solution or a better way of doing things and, and of course actually adhering to the brief that the client has said that he wants. And we're kind of discussing this and the planning works itself I suppose as well as these podcasts is meant to reflect good practice and relevant practice in, in some respects so that idea about sign-off in the research that you did leading up to the writing of the planning work, were you finding out that, that architects a bit lax about getting clients sign off? Is that? Well, you, I mean, you, you see quite a lot of that in the AJ and, and kind of technical pages. Yeah, yes. I mean, I, I think it's not uncommon for architects not to get proper sign off at stage two. And then that puts them into a fairly sticky position as, as they move forward. 
so yeah, I would, I would certainly recommend to anyone doing their part free that, that that's a fairly crucial thing to do. And sometimes it can be difficult. Clients can resist getting things signed off, but I think you just need to persevere and make sure that you get that proper sign off, even if you are running straight into stage three. So, I mean, you've already mentioned it, but just a little bit of clarification on it in terms of this, the, the construction stage is now called manufacturing and construction, which obviously does tap into prefabricated models or modern methods of construction. It's, it's not so modern these days. It's been, we've been talking about it for 30, 40 years. How do you see that having changed in the last period uh, and, and the need for this to be kind of uh, now documented within the planning works? I think the contractors are certainly the larger contractors on the major sites are becoming incredibly adept at you know how to run sites. So uh, I mean the word logistics comes up quite often now. A lot of them now have uh, arrangements with some of the major companies, DHL and some of the other companies that do logistics. They they use consolidation centers to you know, help to get better just-in-time deliveries. So there's a whole ton of initiatives that contractors are doing. They're using 4D, part of the BIM process, to, to rehearse and rehearse and rehearse the optimum way to build a building. So I think all of that's fantastic. But I think for me, what is still there's a piece of the jigsaw that's still missing which i think architects are absolutely paramount to to solving and that is that fundamentally the materials that you can buy just now existed in the the days of the roman you know think about it you know um, gypsum clay those are the materials that we still use today and uh, bricks and tiles i mean they're not actually that different to what the, the romans used and the way i see it is that we've had thousands of years of incremental innovations and inventions and, and i suppose that the last big uh, shift for me was probably at the beginning of the 20th century when the industrial revolution really dialed things up and that i suppose new york was probably the best example of that so we had the the building systems increasing so that's when you got lift systems so we could build taller you got the steel frame so we could then take away the cladding as being load bearing we then started to get mep systems so we could cool the building down and so on and so forth and i think that period was probably when there was the last big burst uh, of activity again there's probably been tweaks along the way with you know some of the increase in the size of glass and so on and so forth but i think that was the last main burst but fundamentally those those components are still quite small and they're all geared to a hand assembling them on site and there, there's a, a video of a, of a robot doing assembling a brick wall and of course the first time people see it they get really excited what i say is well no this is not right and the reason it's not right is that brick was made for the human hand and what we should be doing as architects is inventing the brick for the robot not using a 2000 year old technology Again, there's there's this whole notion about sub-assemblies. You'll hear people talking about modular. I mean, some of my clients say, well, modular, is that not just construction in a factory? It doesn't actually change things. So I, I think we as a profession should really start to imagine the products of the future that are much bigger. Let me give you uh, an example just to close out this section is if I'm doing an office building and I, let's say I, I a sketch a toilet and then the contractor decides to do that modular then of course a contractor then has to come in and do a whole set of drawings for that now in my world uh, of mass customization in the future i would be able to go to a catalog and and go okay here's a toilet for an office building yeah it's got three wcs three sinks and whatever else it needs and it's it's in a catalog it's in a pattern book and i can then just i can then configure the finishes and i can say to the qs well this company here's got a toilet i want and here's the price how does that fit with the cost plan and I think that the, what is absolutely fundamental in the future is how we make that 
interface between the design team and the contractor work better. I think procurement is a big blocker to innovation just now. The example I give is if I could go say seamlessly from my pen and some of the automation that we're doing through to fabrication, I maybe we would do procurement slightly differently. So for me, the materials of the future have to be for the robot on site. They need to be for the robot in the factory. And we as architects need to conceive them as much as anyone else. But you mentioned the industrial revolution and the, and the optimum word there is revolution. Yeah. Do you see this as an evolutionary process or a revolutionary one? Are we going to have you know, to confront one and a half million people doing wet trades on a building site? Do you think there's going to be a shock required for this to happen or will it just naturally flow? I think it'll happen quite slowly. You're right. I think, I mean, people talk about the fourth industrial revolution. And when you see what's happening in society, all around us, there seem to be these battles in place, cyclists versus cars, you know, climate change deniers versus those that you know, actually get it. And, and, and I think to me, that's systematic of the fact that we are entering a period of major change, cultural change, uh, change to bring greater focus to the planet and so on. So I think it's it will definitely change the work of the architects. And a lot of younger architects are already in there trying to make some major changes in the way that we do more sustainable buildings, which I think is absolutely fantastic to see. I think construction is a harder one. In the UK alone, we, we sell six or seven billion pounds a year of construction materials. So that system you know, that, come, that came from the Romans has been built up over a long, long period. So yeah, it, it, it will take a huge amount of time and and i think that's where some some observers get it wrong to transition from that traditional momentum it, it will be incredibly difficult i think and uh, uh, and so yes it, it will take time but it's great to see some people already you know being at the cutting edge of what the, the future might look like one thing that people constantly reference is well why is construction not more like the car industry i mean it's, it's easy to be glib about that and say well buildings are bigger than cars and they have to be anchored into the ground and and of course some sites are absolutely really awkward as hell you know the they're triangular, they're sloping and so on, which you know, makes it really difficult you know, to flow from one project to the next. But I think it's easy to, to make that kind of statement. I still think that for me, buildings are bespoke just now. I mean, a lot of people say that. We design buildings as one-off. On some sectors, I think schools is probably the best example. There are products out there and some housing clients have moved towards products. So there's, uh, I think there's some great housing products out there that you can configure and 14 weeks later, you know, your house is on site. But for me, the exciting thing is what I see is a middle ground, which I, I would call mass customization, where we, we look at a more efficient design process. We look at moving beyond working intuitively. And I think that's one of the big challenges for architects. We this is how we design with you know, years and years of knowledge in terms of how we flow from that early those early ideas into you know into the machine to design. But I think the the more that we can reuse from one project to the next, the more that we then we can focus on tackling the, the, the challenges of the future, including net zero, having a fair, fairer society and looking at social value and all these other topics. A slightly anodyne question following that. The green overlay as was been replaced by the project strategy section, yeah. which is about designers thinking about sustainability at the very onset of the project. So can you explain how you envisage that working? It might be, maybe a simple answer. To get to next net zero position, it need, needs architects to do lots of things that they've never done before. And let, let me just give you a simple example. I mean, we I think we've got a preconception of architects about what materials we like, but are those materials the best for the for the environment? 
I mean, I, I got incredibly excited when I, I saw some of the work that Ellen MacArthur Foundation was doing around the circular economy. And, and I think uh, David, David Cheshire and our team uh, published a book last year called Building Revolutions and around how to apply those principles to the, you know, to the built environment. Now, I get incredibly excited about that, you know, building that can be more flexible into the future. And I'm designing a facility just now that's a, it's a hospital, it's a research facility and and also an education facility and we've designed that to be adaptive for for use so the building is able to flex into the future and and even if the 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 client was ever to move out it can be retrofitted into a hotel or into residential or commercial offices so i think there's a lot that we need to to think about in order to make buildings fit for the future Okay, one question to throw back at it. It's not necessarily a definition of sustainable development within the documents, but it's much more of a yeah. series of metrics and yeah. tapping into the RBA Sustainable Outcomes Guide and, and all that. And yeah. I'm just wondering what you think. I mean, they, they reminded me of the old code for sustainable homes, which was an yeah. incredibly tedious tick box exercise yeah. and all that. I mean, do you have any worries at all in terms of the way that many people are looking at target-driven kind of uh, environmentalism and all that? I think it's a good point. I mean, I think uh, schemes like Briam, uh, I think, are great for doing lots of incre- incremental kind of things to make uh, buildings more sustainable. Uh, but the thing about the Briam scheme is you don't necessarily get points for doing a big play. So I, I remember doing a university once, and we we won. One of the reasons we won the competition was because we looked at sustainability different. We looked at energy use from things like. Um, computing and that were being used in the, in the university has been a major source of electrical loads rather than the kind of bells and whistles stuff at that point in time when PVs and so on were fairly mature. So yeah, no, I, I, do, I do get what you're trying to say, but I think that the future is all about data. You know, I've, I've spoken about the importance of BIM and offsite manufacturing and building more in factories, but I think the one thing that the architect of the future really needs to get a handle on is, is data. And certainly in a lot of my current projects, that's a massive effort that we're making just now looking at how we can aggregate all the data and really start to use it so i think in that context uh, there'll be a lot more metrics in the future that we we have to hit our targets on there's a tool being developed by a group of people just now around value and and part of what that tool is is to allow client to set metrics around the number of things that are then measurable of course what one of the challenges for us as architects is how do you measure design quality because there's some projects that have won the, the the most beautiful building of the year and the ugliest building of the year and the, the same building wins both awards you know so i think i think that's sort of big challenges for us uh, and certainly you'll see in the plan of work the the notion around stage seven about better outcomes for clients that is an incredible challenge i think for the future it's it's easy to probably frame things like energy outcomes so if you 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 say i want my building to not consume more than x or y electricity or or whatever it is but other things it's much harder and i think that's part of the challenge for us is to try and think about how we can make those measurable so that we can increase design quality and and make buildings more sustainable coincidentally the, the government report construction 2025 came out in 2013 which is when the last plan of works was so i don't know whether it was a, yeah. a driver for this uh, new plan of works but they set targets for 2025 of the improvements in the construction industry by the way none of them mentioned aesthetics or anything like that it was yeah. it's, it's uh, i'll just read them out 33 percent reduction in cost 50 percent reduction in project time 50 percent reduction in carbon emissions 
50% reduction in the trade gap. But, you know, that was 2013, the kind of getting over the hump of the, of the crash. And now we've had Grenfell, we've got the global pandemic, we've got Brexit. So I'm just wondering whether these targets are just irrelevant. Are they worthless or are they easy? Because obviously nobody's building anything. Therefore, carbon emissions are quite low these days. I think they're very relevant, but what didn't happen when those targets went out is there was no kind of way of measuring them. So let me take a a simple one. So, for example, project program, when does that start and when does it end? Does it end on practical completion? Does it start when the client starts to put pen to paper on a brief? Uh, So I don't think there was any clarity on that. And of course, the other point is no one's been gathering the data so if you're going to improve things, you, you need to, first of all, set out the data sets that you need, then people provide that data, and then you can start to measure against those. But those data sets are not being collected. And of course, for something like trying to reduce the program time for a building, it takes, say, three years to build a major project. So, I mean, it's going to t- it takes years and years to actually start to gather the data, never mind analyze it and compare and, and see if you made any improvements. But I think fundamentally, there hasn't been a major improvement in programs other than probably projects that have been using offsite uh, manufacturing. There, there's definitely residential projects that can demonstrate that they've made the, the savings that are demonstrated in, in that kind of document. I'll just um, jump on uh, arbitrarily into your latest book. There's that many to, to reference, but I think 2019, your Lee Designer's Handbook uh, yeah. came out, and it, there's a quote saying that it reinvigorates and redefines the Lee Designer role for the digital age. And even though you already said that, you know, the plan of works is not necessarily about the architects, it's about, yeah. about everybody involved in the construction phase, um, here we are kind of trying to address architects. So how would you talk to this next generation of architects and what would you advise them for this coming digital age? I mean, certainly the work that I'm doing for, with my team is, is, I think the key is how can you use the digital tools that are out there to make your work much more efficient? So for example, I've already spoken about 2D. Uh, with my team, we are building digital libraries of spaces. So for example, if I'm doing a, a hospital, I've got a, an operating room uh, that has all of the services in it, all of the finishes, all of the MEP. And that's not to say that I dogmatically repeat that uh, operating theatre in the next project. But if you think about the way we move through CAD, we just draw cuboid, if you like, and then we start to infill it. And we repeat that process every single time. So what I'm trying to do is say, well, how can we make that process better? How can we use digital tools to make elements that we do on one project reusable uh, into the next project? And this is not about standardization. This is about making design more effective. And as I have already said a few times, allowing us to then focus on the challenges of the future uh, such as carbon and uh, and well maybe cost and, and modern methods of fabrication so so i think the message to the next generation is we 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 are entering a period of continual change i mean i think some observers probably think we went from uh, the drawing board to cad you know job done kind of thing that's not the case that it's not a case that we will get a steady state with level two there are so many technologies coming in you know we've got drones we've got robots we've got point cloud surveying i mean it just keeps coming and coming and coming so what i would say to the younger architects is that if you want to really work efficiently and and do great architecture you need to think about uh, the process as much as you do the the quality of your design as well that's an interesting conversation 
that we can have amongst ourselves. And then there's outside is the real world of September 2020, when we're chatting the tail end of a global pandemic, let's assume, economic devastation, and then goodness knows what's around the corner. So I'm just wondering, uh, since you talk about coordinated collaboration between professional institutes is more important than ever, and I appreciate yeah. that the Construction Industry Council is set up to do that. Do you think that there will be pressure on the industry to collaborate more, or do you think there will be more kind of fragmentary tensions to, to survive in some ways in this coming period? What, what's, your, what's your prediction? It's, it's a good point. We published a book two years ago about the future of work, and uh, it's, what's been quite interesting is seeing some of the things that we were predicting would happen in the next decade kind of happen in the space of like six months. So that's been quite interesting. So I think we will see work change. I think the focus has that I've seen in the last six months has been around how individual companies would change. I, I don't think we've quite got to the point of looking at how that impacts on collaboration. What I do know is that I've had to take a design that was at stage two for a 250 million pound project through to stage three during the pandemic. And it's been pretty tough, you know, trying to design a building that's so complex using teams is, has been a hell of a challenge, but we've, we've managed to do it. I think where we've found difficulty is, is just around whole sitting next to someone and sketching and, and marking things up. Uh, so that, that's been a difficult thing. But at the same time, we've used some online tools that have blown me away with how effective they've been. So I think, I think the, I think where we are missing the office, and, and I think this seems to solidify across a whole range of companies, is is that we're missing an office for, for that collaboration thing. And I certainly don't see myself going into the office in the future to have a meeting per se. Uh, I see myself going in to collaborate, to sketch, to get big pieces of paper on the wall for doing some of the, the, the things where we need to sketch ideas and so on. And for socializing and, and, and of course, mentoring people and trying to educate the younger people. So I think that's where the office of the future will come in. And I think it will be the same for collaborating as well. We'll, we'll need to come in and do those really intensive sessions where we can think through some of the, the coordination and collaboration issues. I, I think the word collaboration is kind of is used incorrectly quite often. I think if you if you look in the book you'll see I, I d deliberately uh, set out the difference between teamwork and collaboration. Collaboration is really when you throw a bunch of people in a room and say solve this problem and there is no leader assigned. They, they kind of have to get a leader allocated. And the best example I found of that when it was talking to, you know, it's a bunch of actors were, were saying, you put a bunch of actors in a room and, and, and with a director, you know, that's teamwork, and the director tells them what to do and you get good results. And what this kind of actor was saying, well, if you put us in a room without a director, I mean, who knows what's going to happen? Maybe it would be brilliant, but actually at the same time, maybe it would be absolutely rotten so what i do say in the book is i think most projects do need teamwork for sure and they do need someone to lead the team but i think collaboration is really for the special pieces of a project where you know the tougher things where you do maybe need to get half a dozen people around the table or right now on teams to try and unlock a problem so i think a combination of teamwork and collaboration is what we need for the future and i think in terms of the BIM initiative. I think what was really meant by collaboration there was more about information being readily available for people to use for other purposes. So for example, my model being used for 5D cost or for 4D time. So I, I think the collaboration in that sense was more about people having better access to project information. And one of the things I see into the future is we, we will start to move to a real-time environment in the future. That's where we're going to see a lot of the innovation. There's not a, a time lag between doing things. 
Thanks very much. And it, I mean, there is more to talk about, obviously, and we'll revisit it in later topics in, in later programs. So finally, thanks to Dale Sinclair of ACOM for fascinating, as always, insight into collaboration and the need for rigor in the design and the construction stages. But that's all for now. Please visit the website or search Professional Practice Podcasts on SoundCloud and iTunes and listen to other experts on a wide range of topics. You can always email me, austin.williams at kingston.ac.uk if you want to find out more. But till the next time, thank you very much for listening. All the best.